Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in this space and help lead the charge toward a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm here today with our guest, Hashoshi. He is a crypto YouTuber and influencer. He has weekly educational content on his YouTube channel about blockchain, crypto, and just technology in general. And I'm super excited to have him here with me today to talk to him about how he got into this space, um, how he started creating these videos and all of this awesome educational content. And he's also our influencer of the month for July 2021. And so super excited to be working with him on a variety of different content aside from this podcast episode. Um, If you're listening to this, definitely go check out our videos on our channel and then on Hoshoshi's channel as well. uh, So you can get to know him a little bit better and learn more about what he's working on. So welcome, Hoshoshi. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, Diana, thanks for having me. Really excited about this one. Awesome. So you are obviously a very well-known crypto influencer, YouTuber, but I want to know about who was Hashoshi before he was Hashoshi. Um, who were you before all of this stuff? And like, what's your background and how did you get into crypto in the first place? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, Hashoshi before this was actually uh, someone who would have never, ever made videos and, pu- and published them online. It like took me years to like really pushed myself to do that, uh, kind of an introverted guy by nature. But before, you know, before all of this, before YouTube and everything, I was kind of just a, I was a student who really had no clue what I wanted to do. I was interested in a lot of different topics, really interested in technology. My dad's in technology, he was a programmer. So I fell in love with that at a young age, but I was also interested in economics and finance and, you know, history and all sorts of stuff. And I stumbled, literally stumbled upon the Bitcoin white paper, gosh, now like about 11 years ago. Um, So this is like 2009, 2010, you know, maybe even earlier than that. I don't remember the exact year. And I was in class on StumbleUpon, clicking through, trying to find something to read. And I I read this paper and it was so multidisciplinary in that it covered so many different topics in game theory, economics, monetary systems, technology, all this stuff together. And it was like, this is what I want to do for a living because this gives me the chance to do so many different things and not focus on one single topic. And so I just, after that, I kind of went through the rabbit hole. I was, you know, like kind of like buying and selling trading cards with Bitcoin on Reddit and stuff, you know, kind of like how normal, normally people were getting into crypto and I stuck with it. Ethereum came out and I just kept reading and learning and trying to pick up new things and kind of parlayed that into into development, started tinkering with Solidity when smart contracts came, you know, I guess became more prevalent in Ethereum. And fast forward, I basically was, you know, working with with clients and building dApps and also some other like full stack applications like JavaScript web apps and stuff. And they would always ask me the same sort of questions about blockchain and crypto. And so I started recording videos to explain basic topics like what is hashing or what is blockchain so that I didn't have to keep explaining it in the simplest terms. And I could kind of send it ahead of time. And other people started watching them and like commenting on them. And I'm like, you know what? Like, I don't really I'm not super comfortable with this whole video thing, but I'm just going to keep doing it and like see what happens. And then, you know, here we are four years later, I'm still doing it and it's turned into something <laughs> that's that's really fun that I like doing. That's awesome. So when you first read the Bitcoin white paper back in 09, 2010, super early days, did you just buy into it right off the bat? Or was there some hesitation? Did you have doubts? Were you like, what is this? I don't understand it. I feel like most people even today will get exposed to crypto or blockchain concepts and still have a lot of confusion and doubt around it. And so this is, you know, 11 years ago, it's even more, I guess, just um, incredible to like think that somebody could have just picked that up and, you know, understood it or bought into it or like saw the potential of it uh, right off the bat. Yeah, I mean, I will I won't say that I was like, okay, all in. First of all, I didn't really have money back then. So it was like, I didn't really have the opportunity to buy a bunch. And there was also not really that many places to actually like go buy it. Like 
there wasn't like a, a Coinbase type of experience. You know, people hate on Coinbase, but they, they did make it really easy to get into to Bitcoin and others. So, I mean, and back then I, I was hesitant that other people that weren't kind of nerds like me would ever care about it. Like, I really, I really didn't think so. And I actually remember several conversations with friends and family like, yeah, the Bitcoin thing is cool, but I'm not sure that people are going to adopt it, like that anyone's going to care and that anyone besides like me and a couple other people are really going to like going to use it. And, you know, I was totally wrong on that. Right. And so I, I don't think that there are very few people, like you said, that that read it, that that got into Bitcoin in some form or fashion that understood where it was going to go and how far it was going to go. Like if you told me back then that Bitcoin would would reach sixty five thousand dollars U.S., I would have laughed at you. Right. And like this is from a person who like understood it and believes it and believed in it to an extent. Um Obviously, my life would be very different if I had 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 thought about it that way. But, you know, that's that's just the truth. I, I wasn't aware of how how big and well adopted it would be. Yeah. So for somebody listening maybe to this podcast or just getting into the space today, how would you explain crypto and blockchain to a, a total newbie, newbie that's just getting into it today? That's like one of the, the most interesting questions. And it's like, it's almost subjective in the sense that how people like what people value in it could be different. But to me, it's really at very face value. It's taking traditional systems that we have. So like, for example, like banking and, and monetary systems where you exchange value with somebody else. All of those are operated in a way that there are centralized entities who control the supply of the monetary instrument who control the rules around how you transact that 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 money they sort of have final approval as to who can participate and how you're who you can transact with and in this case you can achieve all the core benefits of having a centralized authority like preventing double spend preventing one person from just you know creating new money supply or like blocking transactions you can do all that in a decentralized ecosystem by way of a consensus mechanism where you have a shared ledger Everyone keeps a copy of that ledger and helps to sort of validate transactions and hold each other accountable. And in that way, you can get rid of those middlemen that introduce cost or gatekeep those systems and then achieve the same goals without, you know, a, a single like sort of bordered walled garden. And this now the same thing applies for, for computation as well for applications. So like with Facebook, for example, you go on Facebook, you're reaching out to a server where they have application code that is opaque to you. You don't really see it. You don't really control it. There's no clarity on what the rules are necessarily. And then you go to something like Ethereum, all decentralized applications are essentially open source. You can go and look at the code. You can verify what they do and how they do it. And you can audit it very clearly. And the only middleman in that situation really is the code itself. So the platform is very much so the middleman rather than like a, a server and a big company, et cetera. So it's like a, just a, a big paradigm shift away from very centrally dominated services across the board. I really like the way that you explain that because a lot of people, I think, still have this impression of crypto as being just for finance people, you know, if you're not in a finance, if you're not in a stocks, then there's there's no draw in crypto for you. And the way you explain that is really as more of an idea or a movement or a concept than, you know, a specific application to uh, one field like finance, for instance. So I, I love that explanation. Thanks. Yeah. And it's not it gets misconstrued as this like sort of like pseudo anarchistic thing. And it really it really isn't. It's just moving technology and common like interactions between human beings to what it really in my opinion should have been from the very beginning like the internet was designed to make information decentralized and readily available and the internet just by way of like human nature like sort of centralizing forces has kind of become a very gate-kept environment i think you know blockchain in general as a technology is sort of moving us towards where the internet was trying to go in the first place and just wasn't yet able to do because the technology wasn't there. And it's an exciting time, but we're still so early. So it's it's not a get rich quick scheme. It's not like a in 2022, everything's going to be like done and ready to go and the world's going to change. It's going to take time, but uh, it's an exciting paradigm shift. 
Yeah, for sure. And one way I've heard it said is it's an evolution, not a revolution. So going back to your point about we're not just like a bunch of anarchists trying to like completely like derail the system that we've lived in. It's, it's just an evolution into, you know, hopefully a better world. I'm also wondering, too, you know, like you are the go to source for learning for so many people in the space. So for you, like who's your go to source for learning? Yeah, there's a lot out there. I, I mean, I've been a big and it's it's a tough thing to do, but I'm a big reader of white papers. I know a lot of people don't like white papers, but I actually don't mind the like ugly math and like really technical stuff. So I read a lot of white papers, particularly white papers written by folks with like really lofty ideas like Gavin Wood, for example, behind Polkadot uh, and also early Ethereum uh, material as well. But other creators as well, I think that guy from Coin Bureau is fantastic, right? I also think um, that the content that Andreas Antonopoulos has made in general is just high quality, like very easy to understand technical stuff. So it's like understanding multisigs or understanding how the underlying components of, of Bitcoin work. Um, and then some of those books that he's written as well, like uh, with Mastering Bitcoin, Mastering Ethereum, those are both like, those are the, if you want, to, if you want two books that will change how you look at crypto and how you understand the technology behind it, just buy those two books. Like, even if you have to sell some crypto to buy it, do it. Cause those books like will, will give you a ton of background knowledge. Like that's, those are my bread. Those are my bread and butter, to be honest. Okay. So that is what I will be doing right after this <laughs> podcast then. <laughs> yeah. So let's get into your YouTube channel, Hashoshi, and this whole brand that you've built. Um, so, you know, you mentioned earlier that it sort of just like happened. It, it wasn't an intentional decision. It was like you started making videos to explain things to people and then it turned into this whole thing. Where did the name Hashoshi come from? <laughs> That's funny. So the first, the very first video that I like wrote that I, that I wanted to make was like, what is hashing? Because everyone's like, well, what the hell is hashing? You know, like, why... Why is it important? How does it work? You know, it's a foundational, I guess, um, component of most, well, actually all blockchain networks, to be honest. So I basically took hash, the, the root word of the verb, and then mixed it with Satoshi for Satoshi Nakamoto and just ran with that. It was like it, it, it took, like most people like spend a lot of time thinking about like branding, like what their name is. That was a decision that took me eight seconds. I'm like, okay, what's a cool name? Uh, okay, that works for me. Typed it in, uploaded the video, and then I was done. So it like really, there wasn't a whole lot of thought to it, but that's where it came from. Did you always know that you would go with a pseudonym instead of going with your real name? Or like, what was the thinking behind that? Because, you know, in the crypto space, it's becoming a bigger and bigger thing to go with a pseudonym or to be completely anonymous instead of using your real name. And this was four years ago i think that you started this four or five years ago and um so you were kind of early to the to the pseudonym game yeah and i think it's just personality thing like i was already not super like comfortable putting stuff out there and so it was like an extra little layer of like even though my face is on video like anyone who really wants to figure out who i am realistically could probably do so it would take some digging but they could probably do so it, it was more about like me just creating a name that i thought was interesting and then creating content with it just it was like kind of like it made it lower pressure for me and then su subsequently too i'm kind of like a private guy in general like people who follow me on social media i'm always talking about you know privacy and and things that you can do in your everyday life to just keep your personal info from just being circulated widely on the web and uh yeah so i guess it's just like a personality thing no other reason other than that and to be honest with you i've thought about kind of just putting my my real name out there again but we'll see maybe one day yeah gotcha that makes a lot of sense so i want to know a little bit more about your content process um so walk me through the process of like what what goes into creating one of your videos like how long does it take like how how long do you spend planning it out versus recording do you have to do a lot of takes talk me through your process yeah, my process has changed a ton since I started. When I started, it was like I would write I would write notes down and I would plan it out. And it would take me a long time because I wasn't fully comfortable talking to a camera. I would make a lot of mistakes. 
And then I wasn't fully comfortable with editing software either. So it's like it, the whole thing kind of took me a long time. I had familiarity with cameras because I've been doing like camera stuff for a long time. But now I've gotten kind of more comfortable and I can, I'm better now at speaking to inanimate objects, I guess, which is like this weird psychosis that you have to have as a YouTube person. And so my, my goal is always to do all my videos in one take. It doesn't always work out that way, but you know, I would say 70% of my videos I can get through in one take where I'm just kind of breaking where I'll edit for like transitions between segments. And that's like, that's made my life so much easier even in edit. And then it's just overlaying, you know, imagery and other things like that. Any music that I want to add potentially. So, I mean, now videos that used to take me six hours could take me like two hours, you know, which is fantastic because I still, you know, still have all sorts of other work. Like this is, this is probably the smallest thing that I do in my, in my life. So like this, it can't take six hours or I would go crazy. So it's, it's great that it's been optimized and, you know, I want to start being able to post more content and more videos for folks. So the more I can optimize and, and get stuff done, the better. Um, but for me, it's all about quality. If I think that whatever I write isn't going to be valuable, then I will try, I'll scrap it and redo it. And if it comes out a month later, then that's totally fine. But if when I, when I post, I want it to be good. And how do you get ideas for your content? Is it really just whatever you're thinking of at the moment? Or do you uh, sort of, you know, go like the SEO route where you see what what keywords are really, you know, doing are really doing well with SEO and then go after those videos? Or uh, what, what's your process for coming up with ideas? Yeah, I mean, it's a mix. I will sometimes like I often do content from questions like people that ask me a ton of questions online and stuff on Twitter or discord or youtube or whatever and i will kind of find themes in the questions and if it's one that warrants a full video i'll do that the other one is um i make content about stuff i like and stuff that i have like interesting insights to talk about and it's almost to my detriment because like my channel probably like you can you can grow a channel very quickly by you know saying and doing and making content about certain things that's like that are really hot it's just not really interesting to me and it's not fun. It's like, I just don't do it. And at that point, it's kind of for me, when I sit there and I think about something, it often will start off as like one line where I think about something like this theme would be really cool in a video. Like I did a video about chain link VRF, like, um, you know, verifiable random functions. And I'm like, people really care about this. And it's, it's, it's sort of relevant to DeFi and relevant to NFTs. And it's like a cool, like thematic storyline. And so I made that video and that's generally how they start. It's just I, an idea pops in my head. I write it down and then I kind of pick from it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, another thing I think about a lot is how Web3 is going to sort of change the script for content creators. And I'm sure it's something you've thought about too. Right now you're, you're, even though you're talking about Web3 concepts in your videos, you're still very much a web two content creator. You still exist in this web two space. And so when you think about how web three is going to change the landscape for content creators, what, what sorts of things do you think about? And like, how will, you know, like in, I don't know how long, 10 years, 20 years when we're really fully moved on to web three and, you know, you're still a YouTuber maybe, or a different type of content creator, how will your life look differently then? I think that the thing that's holding back Web3 content right now is the fact that it's it's very human in the sense that like a lot of the complaints people have about Web2, like traditional content platforms like YouTube or um, even other social media platforms like Twitter is like everyone's like, oh, you know, censorship is bad and, you know, removing people from the platform is bad when in reality it's like you when you click the checkbox for terms and conditions, like you should be aware that that is what you are doing. Like you are signing away your rights to be complaining about these sorts of things in a private like environment. And all of these platforms are centralized entities that need to make money and they can't make money if certain content is there, they can't advertise certain things. So it's like, they probably, in my opinion, these platforms don't really want to censor people, but the nature of their business is that they have to. And that is the reason why they do so. Um, even though some might think it's like a, a deep state conspiracy, which, you know, 
think what you would like. That's totally fine. Web three though is, is kind of on the totally opposite end of the spectrum where it's like anything goes. And I think that actually makes it harder for those platforms to succeed because no matter how, no matter who you are, you have deep rooted beliefs and, and thoughts and you might go on one of those platforms as sort of an average non-crypto, non-Web3 type user to just see what's going on there and like be like, I'm never coming back here because there's all sorts of crazy stuff being posted there. And the truth about content is that eyeballs are king. And the reason that YouTube is so successful is because they have almost a captive audience of like billions of eyeballs that will that are looking for content and will ravenously consume content and their like content delivery is top notch in terms of matching people to content they want to watch web3 platforms need to nail that down before they start nailing down all of the like the the freedom parts and the like the crypto oriented like incentive programs those things are not going to matter if you can't get people on the platform to actually use it and so i don't not going to say i have all the answers because i haven't you know, I'm I'm only one guy and I'm not that special, to be honest with you. So I just believe that at some point there's going to have to be some sort of mechanism by which governance can be achieved on these platforms to sort of shave off the both spectrums of crazy so that there's freedom, but not so much freedom that people don't even want to be there. And the comments are like so horrendously scary and terrible that people are like, don't want to even go to the website, you know? that those types of things are important and it's a, it's a tough balance to strike it's like content that can't be taken down that's 100% owned by the creator is very good but there are also bad things that come with it and it's how do you balance those two things that's that's really challenging so it'll take a while for those problems to be solved but i'm very excited for that to happen cuz i will use those platforms <laughs> when when that day does come for sure. Those are some really good points. Do you think that in those decentralized platforms that it'll almost be self-filtering? Like, you know, if one of the platforms does get crazy out of control with a bunch of uncensored content that nobody even wants to look at, then that'll just be like an automatic, like a, a, that'll naturally filter out everybody from the platform and that platform will die out. And then everybody will go to another platform. Do you sort of see it happening like that where platforms are, platforms consist of creators and viewers that share similar interests or share similar views um, on things and they'll naturally gravitate towards the same platform and naturally gravitate towards each other. Do you think it'll be self-filtering in that way or do you think it, you know, it'll really just like get out of hand and we have to have some sort of some level of centralization to keep people under control? Yeah, it's a tough question. I mean, and you could also argue like what is good, quote unquote good. I know it's subjective for humanity. In my opinion, it's creating a platform in which a wide variety of opinions can coexist in a like a nice way the unfortunate part is human beings don't really like to play nicely with people that don't believe what they believe so is it likely that that ever happens probably not so where i think we'll end up going is a a hybrid model where the actual content and the model of compensation for creators will be more open and decentralized and borderless where like if i'm in a small country that doesn't have a huge global trade footprint i can make just as much money if my content is good as somebody else even though the like partner program is not well developed there right like that's the goal enablement of all creators around the world to be able to do this equitably. Like I'm in the U S I have tons more opportunities than somebody else that's creating maybe the same exact quality content that I'm making or better that can't make a cent doing it. And I don't run ads because it's not my thing. But if I did, I would wake, make way more money than somebody else in another country. Like that needs to be fixed in terms of like moderating content and censorship. I think to solve the problem, you really just have to move away from having one big, monster monolithic entity making all the decisions unilaterally if you put were to put a governance council in place of a nice mix of could be even like uh you know staking elected officials if you will to help make those kind of governance decisions about content that that could be a solution because then it's not one single opinion governing what's okay and what's not is that the final answer? 
probably not, but I think it could work. And, you know, ultimately I think that the biggest goal is looking for it, looking for a solution where there is reason and that you're providing protection from like the totally out there crazy stuff, but you're also giving people the platform to share their opinion and, and, you know, research-based or fact-based um, evaluations of certain events or, you know, things that are going on without having to feel like they're being removed to their platform. Yeah, for sure. All very good points as well. And then another consideration that, you know, content creators talk about all the time is just making money. And that's a big complaint that people have on these platforms like YouTube or artists with Spotify is that they the platform takes such a big cut of the money that you could be making from the views you're actually generating. And you made a good point. It's like, well, a like you have to have the eyeballs on your content first. And that's what they're helping you do. So um, so definitely there are two sides to that coin. But when you think about the Web3 world, do you think that creators will be able to make more money on Web3 platforms because that middleman is eliminated and they can get paid directly by their fans? Or do you think that that because of this you know, elimination of the middleman that anybody can be creating content and that there will actually be more competition in the space for creators and it'll actually be harder for them to make money because they're competing with more people. How do, how do you like view that sort of, um, you know, two, the two sides of that coin? Yeah, there's a niche for everyone. I think like your one's niche might be smaller than another one, like on YouTube right now. If you talk about like financial products, like and, and investing or like wealth, you'll make a ton more money than somebody who talks about like basket weaving, right? Like there's probably a ton of people who care about basket weaving, but like, it's just not as much of like an advertisable or an advertiser friendly topic. So, you know, that side of the business means that depending on what niche you have, you can, you make less money because it's all driven by like where advertisers want to put their stuff when it's direct payment from like content creators. So like, if you look at something like brave browser, for example, where, you know, the longer the eyeballs are looking at your stuff and watching your content, the more money is being contributed in the form of basic attention tokens. Like that is a very equitable way of doing it because the more people that care about your stuff, regardless of what topic you're talking about, you're getting relative paid relatively the same amount. Um, that being said, like there, there will be inevitably more competition because this will be an open, you know, sort of an open system. But I actually think that's to creators benefit because there's now a lot of fragmentation in terms of how people consume content around the world. And in even like video, like in parts of Asia, like YouTube is either not allowed or people just don't use it because it's not like the thing there. And there's another platform. If there became if there were a place where globally people could consume content all in the same place, it's like there will be more content to consume, but way more people to consume it as well. So I think the, the ratio will still even out over time. And the truth of the matter is one thing that I've sort of figured out in this whole like YouTube journey thing is persistence and continuously creating stuff is like the only thing you really have to do like you have to make good content that people care about but if you just keep making content you are already top one percent because most people make 10 videos make 50 videos and then quit because they're not getting famous and then they like that those are those people are not necessarily competition it may look like they are because their channel still exists but they're not actively creating so like the real competitive landscape is is actually not as big as people might think, in my opinion. Very good points there. Yeah, very true. I, I I would agree with that. All right, let's do something fun here since you're sort of the master of explaining, you know, complex crypto concepts to newbies. And so I'm just going to, I've got a list of words here and they're crypto words. They're kind of just like buzzwords in the, in, that you see in the space that newbies, I'm sure, have all had some exposure to and probably don't know what they mean. And I'm just going to go down the list and give you a chance to explain it to a newbie. Okay, so explain it in a very basic way that, you know, is easy to understand and gets them excited to learn more. So the first one I've got here is Bitcoin. What is Bitcoin? In my opinion, and this is an opinion, Bitcoin in its most simplest form is a store of value platform 
on which you can exchange value with individuals or groups in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion. And it is a great representation of what gold is, which is a finite supply asset that is not necessarily controlled by a single person or a single entity. The supply is non-malleable. You can't just arbitrarily create more. And therefore, because of the way that it is issued over time, as the network and transactions are, are mined into blocks, that means that over time, the, the pressure of new supply entering into circulation, actively available to other people, you start to have this upward pressure in price. As long as demand stays static for Bitcoin, because of the fixed supply and the ever-reducing rate of inflation or release of supply, the generally, generally higher the price will go. And over time, if you look at the, the macro trend, that's kind of what has happened. And so this, the narrative is Bitcoin is very much the new digital store of value that is in its own right borderless and accessible to virtually everyone. Uh, that is, I think, the, the biggest thing to take away without really even having to understand a whole lot about how it works. Like that is what Bitcoin is. It's like sound money, if you will, or a sound asset. Awesome. Okay. So this next word I have is Ethereum. And so it might be more helpful to um, talk about it in the context of what you just said about what is Bitcoin and compare and contrast. So I'll, I'll let you take it. Yeah, so Ethereum in juxtaposition to Bitcoin is less about the asset itself, which in, in Ethereum is Ether. It's more about Ether being a unit or a utility or truly a, a like it's more like money. Ether is more like money that you might be used to where you spend your money to achieve certain goals or tasks or to do something. In the Ethereum world, the focus is about decentralized applications or dApps. And so in contrast to Bitcoin, Ethereum is an execution environment where developers can write code, which executes in the context of the blockchain. And without getting into too much technical like jargon, essentially everyone in the network, all the, the members of the network, independently validate the output of that code's execution so it's not like it's just code that executes in this black box it's basically open source code that's executed and everyone validates that the output is in fact legitimate based on the inputs that's basically determinism the same inputs will always equal the same outputs and in that case right ether is basically just a mechanism by which to pay for executions and to exchange sort of a you know, a base layer of value between entities on the network. So if you think about it, it really is a lot like money in the sense that when you want to execute a piece of code, you pay a small denomination of Ether to do so. If you want to send Ether to somebody else to pay for a good or service, you can send Ether directly to them. So there's this, you know, you've it's almost like a, a whole world computer as it was described in the white paper, the yellow paper, excuse me, early on. Uh, that's how you can think about it. And to me, everyone thinks about Bitcoin and Ethereum as competition. In fact, they are actually one of the two of the most complementary pieces of technology ever because Bitcoin can be a place almost like a savings account for people to store and accrue value over time. Obviously, in the micro, everyone's like, oh, well, Bitcoins have from its all time high. Yes. But over time, it, it does generally increase in value. And Ethereum is where you can then take that value that is stored on the Bitcoin network and and put it to use, like put it to some sort of application and then move that. What if you've made money in the Ethereum world on an application, you can move it back into the Bitcoin world to sort of save and grow over time. So they're very complementary in, in the way that they're built, despite what you might see on Twitter and people arguing. <laughs> I love that explanation and that framing of it. They are, they are abs I absolutely agree with you. They are complementary. They are not in competition with one another. All right. The next word I have is blockchain technology. Yeah. Blockchain is what underpins Bitcoin, Ethereum, basically all of the blockchains that you hear about, like the protocols that you hear about. And at its very base layer, blockchain technology is derivative of a distributed ledger, which basically is a ledger that contains the state of transactions, which are basically events that like I sent one Bitcoin to Diana yesterday. You know, it's like it, those are the types of things that are stored in it or in an Ethereum world, executing this smart contract with this output 
at this timestamp for this amount of ether. That's what's recorded in the ledger. Now, in a traditional system, you would have a centralized server that would do this computation, store that into a database as like a record, and there would be an administrator who can basically add, remove records at will, manipulate the data, change the rules without telling you what have you. In a blockchain, instead, the way that that execution is done is by way of distributing that ledger to a bunch of different participants, which are called nodes in this case, which are just computers running the same software. These nodes agree to a protocol, which is how transactions get written to that ledger, how you agree on a certain cadence about what's in that ledger, and then moving forward, that basically carries as, as the protocol. So for example, um, you would have transactions rolling in to a queue, essentially. Those transactions get pulled into blocks, and then each block is tied to the previous one and creates a chain of blocks, hence the name blockchain. And the validation part of it is really derivative of everyone in the network having a copy of that same ledger to keep each other accountable instead of having a central authority to do so. And then on a certain cadence, every 10 minutes, every five minutes, sometimes every 30 seconds, depending on the protocol, agreeing on the state of that ledger. So saying, hey, we agree that all the transactions up to now are valid. Now moving forward, we'll keep doing this every X number of minutes or X number of seconds. And that's with all without a central authority. Uh, so without getting into the consensus mechanism part, which is a rabbit hole, just know that when the network reaches consensus, it is in the absence of a centralized party to do that work. That's really what a blockchain is. And all the protocol stuff built on top of it is what makes each blockchain itself unique. Perfect. I can now tell why you're a crypto YouTuber <laughs> because you're so good at explaining these things. All right. Next word I have for you is DeFi. Yeah, DeFi is a, a very a very deep one, but at the highest possible level, DeFi stands for decentralized finance. And decentralized finance really represents a shift from centralized authority-driven financial products. So things like lending, right? You can go to a bank and you can get a personal loan to remodel your bathroom. Unfortunately, to do that, you are basically borrowing money from you know deposited funds in that bank they're charging you an interest rate that is extremely high, like, you know, depending on your credit, right? You could be paying 10, 15, 20%, maybe even more, depending on the type of loan that you're getting. Uh, and the person's money that you are effectively borrowing is money that's in deposit. So other people's, you know, account accounts with that bank. The interest that that bank is paying the person whose money they're lending is negligible. We're talking like on a good day, you can get in the one or two percents. Right now are not good days. So you're getting paid virtually nothing or you're, you're actually losing money due to inflation. That's another story. But in the decentralized finance world, you basically are taking what the bank does and you are replacing the bank, that middleman, with a smart contract. So instead of an entity being a middleman, you have code as the middleman. And the focus of that code is to do that same sort of work. And so you have DeFi lending platforms like Ave, for example, is a great a great one. And essentially, it just basically matches people that want to lend cryptocurrency to people that want to borrow cryptocurrency and uses algorithms or other calculations to determine what interest rates these certain uh, lending deals pay. Effectively, it means that it's more equitable, meaning those who are lending cryptocurrency are going to get paid much better rates and people who are borrowing subsequently are going to get better rates on on the borrow because they're the actual platform itself which was the bank doesn't get to charge a, a ridiculous amount and commit it to profit right so it's basically a shift away from the old way of doing certain you know facilitating certain financial products to a new way of doing so where generally you have to trust in the code rather than trusting in a central authority generally speaking Perfect. All right. I've got two more for you. The next cool. one is NFT. Yeah. NFTs. This is a good one. I've one of my favorite topics, actually. So like with, with t when talking about NFTs, it stands for non-fungible tokens. And the first thing people say, like, what the hell is fungible mean? And in general, fungibility is really like whether or not an asset can be exchanged on a one to one basis with another of like kind. So a fungible asset would be something like uh, a dollar bill 
I really personally, I don't care what dollar bill I have and what serial number it has on it as long as because it's worth a dollar. Every dollar bill is worth a dollar. So it is in that case fungible. A non-fungible asset is something that has unique attributes that make it more or less valuable than another of like kind. So that would be something like a baseball card or a Pokemon card or some other collectible like art, for example. You may have two Pokemon cards in your hand, but both of them will be worth very, very different values based on their unique attributes, their rarity, their whether they're holographic or not, what they do in the actual game of Pokemon. That's what a non-fungible asset is. And so non-fungible tokens are just digital mechanisms by which you can create non-fungible assets. And so in the context of a blockchain, a non-fungible token is really a unique, one-of-a-kind number, really, if you think about it. It's like a unique identifier that points to a piece of media that might be a video, it might be a piece of digital art, it might be an in-game item what have you, but each individual token is unique in its own sense, which is different than something like a stable coin, like USD coin or USDC, which is a fungible ERC-20 token, which can then be used like money, right? Because I don't care what USDC I have because it's still worth about a dollar, you know? So that's really what a non-fungible token is. And I know there's a lot of depth to that topic. I think we've got some pretty interesting content coming out about that. So stay tuned. Yes, for sure. If you want to hear more about NFTs and hear hear Hoshoshi talk more about it, go to his channel, go to our channel on Savile Domains, and uh, you'll see more content there. All right. And then last word I have for you is the se seemingly the hot topic nowadays as the NFT craze has slowed down a little bit from the first half of the year. Now we're moving into DAOs. Everybody's talking about DAOs, Decentralized Autonomous Organization. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, DAOs are like sort of the next, in my opinion, one of the next big things. It was actually very popular early on in sort of the, the crypto space or the Web3 space. But essentially, a decentralized autonomous organization is a governance mechanism by which decisions can be made on behalf of a larger group by this sort of um, predefined decentralized council, I guess you could call it, or a group. And often these are these DAOs are built upon a, an agreed set of rules, which are, you know, how you may elect decision makers, whether is it, is it by like, you know, direct voting where you tally up votes and then there's a cycle where you maybe are um, in charge of governance for five days, how voting occurs on decision making. But DAOs are now being built into protocols, actual blockchain protocols to eliminate one more of those centralizing forces, which is like the core foundation behind the project leading all the development on new features for the project. So you see Ethereum, the Ethereum foundation, that's often a, a sort of cut against Ethereum is that the Ethereum foundation, folks like uh, Vitalik Buterin, one of the, I guess the person who's credited with most of the work behind Ethereum, the figurehead of Ethereum, if you will, being in charge of Ethereum. And so the answer to that is generally DAOs, and that is creating a mechanism by which general participants that just interact with the blockchain network or interact with a specific project can then become or be involved in the decision-making process of funding new development, making decisions about different network parameters that might need to be changed, the issuance of new coins on the network, those sorts of things. It's basically digital democracy in the context of a blockchain network as a whole or a project, an individual like DeFi project or NFT project, what have you. So it's a mechanism or a means to an end for decentralization, if you will. Amazing. All right. Awesome job with that. I hope that was fun for you. It was very educational for me. Uh, one question I have for you is for newbies listening to this and they're like, man, I want to learn more other than going to your YouTube channel and looking at your stuff. What are some of the best ways for newbies to start learning about the space? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the first thing to do is to try and extricate the two sides of crypto from each other, which is the money part, which is the buy this token, get rich, because that to me is the nonsense part, because it's not it isn't deterministic like that. It's like if you put money here, you will become rich. That part doesn't matter. It's really what will drive good in investment decisions if that's something that you're into in the first place, which is, again, a personal choice, the focus should be finding out about projects that make sense to you and looking at them from a problem-focused perspective. Does this protocol 
solve a problem that exists in the real world or in the crypto like web three world that we've we've found and do, do you think realistically people will use this is it going to make people's lives better and then also not just the technology because that's sometimes hard for people to grasp if you're not a tech person it should also be if you're not a tech person how comfortable do you feel when you're reading all the stuff and you're trying to use the protocol if there's no wallet available for you to use if the wallet requires like command line terminal like code and, and all sorts of crazy stuff to even get started that might indicate to you okay well this isn't ready for mainstream adoption and it's hard for normal everyday people and non-technical people to use maybe it's not mature enough for me to want to invest in yet so like being very focused on what you know and what you can understand and how you value something is key you can find that on project websites. You can find that on YouTube, not just my channel. There are plenty of other ones. And then also like some of these exchanges have started coming out with really good informational content like Kraken and Gemini both have like this whole page devoted to explaining projects in relatively simple terms for, I mean, obviously it benefits them because most of the assets they talk about are ones that are listed on their exchange. So take it with a grain of salt, but those are great places to start to like really pick it up and learn and see what you like, what you don't like. Um, and my recommendation is always just be be conservative and don't fall into the trap of like the the cycle of content because content is content for a reason. People make stuff that they think are, is going to get clicked. And what's going to get clicked if you look at two videos is like uh, th this cryptocurrency is going to 100, 100x tomorrow is going to get clicked over the best feature of this project that will make it valuable in five years. Like it, the one is more exciting than the other one. And just be cognizant of like the cognitive bias that comes with that. When you want to click that video that confirms that you're going to be rich tomorrow. Right. It's like, that's and something everybody struggles with, including me. And I even, I know these rules. So just be mindful of that. Great advice. Great advice there. I absolutely agree with all of that. And so what is next for Hashoshi? Like, is do you ever see this becoming your full-time gig? Um, do you have any, like, special plans for the future? Or, you know, you'll just keep creating the videos that you're creating, which are already really great. Thanks. Yeah, I I don't know exactly what the future holds longer term. Um, right now, totally happy to do this in, like, in spare time. And it's a lot of fun really thankful for everyone who watches my stuff generally still blows my mind all the time. But for me, one thing I do know is that I've got a couple of new, like running predictable, like same day every week type of segments coming out. Um, so stay tuned for those. One of them has already been like kind of announced subtly for people who watch my channel. Uh, there's going to be like a, my 404 logic not found segment, which is kind of like debunking or like kind of take taking down sort of weird illogical like goofy stuff that happens in the tech world or in the crypto world um, so that's coming but another cool series that's coming soon that i've been working on for a while so i'm really excited about that awesome very cool all right and then we end every episode of the podcast with a segment called explain your tweet so we've got to do that with you uh i'm just going to pull out one tweet in the interest of time um but this one is from june 30th 2021 you tweeted I took a two-month road trip around the USA camping and couch surfing after college. I saw 38 states and met people all over. That changed my life. You don't realize how different the world is from where you grow up until you see it. Everyone should do this eye-opening. I feel like you've got a lot of great stories here. I just wanted to hear more about it. Yeah, this was something I did after school and like after kind of right before I started like really working. I was I've always kind of worked and like done stuff like I was a cook for a long time and I was doing like you know website design and development before that but like before I really started like settling down and, and working I took this road trip with a couple of friends around the U.S. Um, and I just being able to go from state to state and realizing like even in the U.S. not even traveling abroad which I've also done and that's you know if people are lucky enough to be able to do that that's also life-changing but even inside of the US specifically, every state is like its own country. The culture is different, people speak differently, the socioeconomics are very different. And like, it just, it, it's one of those things where if you've lived in one place and you haven't moved around a lot, you don't realize how different everything is in different places that are even really close to you within 200 miles of you. Um, and that that to me was, was really eye-opening. But the other thing too is, a lot of people that grow up now are very like tied to technology 
and very tied to like habit and like they do the same thing every day. And doing that trip is kind of like, A, it proved to me that you can live on no money, basically. Like you can literally have very little, re you have very little resources and you can still eat really well and like survive, like live for a couple months on like barely any money, which was huge. And then the other thing too, is that being close to nature and like living in nature, minus some of the things that make it uncomfortable, like one of the most, your mind just feels better. At least for me, you just feel better there because you're not, you don't feel like there's just stuff weighing down on you because you're, you feel very open and free. So that's a huge thing. Like if you have the chance, if you live in the US or if you're from another country, just come to the US, don't go to cities, go to national parks and camp. Or if you're not into camping, rent a car and camp in the back of the car with like air conditioning, whatever you got to do. But it's like, if I could recommend one thing to everyone in terms of travel, like the extravagant trips like abroad are cool, but national parks, wherever you are, are game changing. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. Before, I feel like one of the silver linings that is, that's come out of COVID for me, at least, is it's forced me to be more of a road tripper instead of a hop on the plane and go somewhere far away kind of person. Um, but got to like see so many new states in the last year since, you know, haven't really been able to fly. And we, for instance, we just drove through Colorado and Utah and I was like posting videos and photos from Utah and people were like, what? Like Utah has mountains. Utah has like... <laughs> Yeah, like <laughs> people have no idea like what they've even got in their own home country, myself included. So yeah, I, I agree with yeah. that hundred percent. Yeah, driving, you can just, you have all the freedom in the world. Like you can be like, hey, this looks cool. I'm going to stop here and we're going to stay here for two days. Like that is the, that stuff is just really, is just really fun, I, I think personally. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Well, thank you so much, Hashoshi, for yeah. joining me here. Uh, you're, I feel like I have to like re-listen to this episode that I was already part <laughs> of so I can take notes about how you explain all of these concepts so well to newbies because that's something that I definitely struggle with. Before you go, remind people again you know, how they can find you, whether it's on YouTube or Twitter or wherever uh, you have a presence online, how they can get in touch with you. Yeah, sure. I would say the most active place for me, generally speaking, would be um, obviously YouTube where I post videos every week. Uh, you can find me on there by just searching Hashoshi, H-A-S-H-O-S-H-I. And then on Twitter, I'm also very active and I try and answer every question I get. Obviously, sometimes I get busy and I can't, but um, I am at Hashoshi4, the number four. Um, and so make sure there are a lot of scammers out there, like pretending to be me with like weird, like little permutations of my name, or it's like they remove an H or they add an underscore at the end. I'm not going to reach out to you and like sell you mining equipment. So that, that isn't me, but you, you know, you'll know at Hashoshi four is the only place. And I think Twitter and YouTube are the best place to, to reach me. Perfect. We'll include that in the show notes as well. So people can click through easily. Thanks again, Hashoshi, so much for being here. Uh, can't wait for people to see the other content that we're going to create and release this month as well. Thank you listeners for tuning in and we will be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. Great. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you and thanks again for listening.